And take her to the picture show Everybody in the neighborhood Is dressing up to be there too Hi, welcome to the Juno Files. I'm Jim Juno, and this is where we talk with authors who write books about Hollywood, uh, classic movies, classic television, and basically everything in between. And I have with me today, uh, she was on one of my first shows several years ago. Uh, she has a paperback version of, of a book that came out originally in 2013. This new paperback version is coming out on February 22nd, 2022, according to Amazon. And the book is called John Gilbert, The Last of the Silent Film Stars, and Eve Golden. Welcome back to the Juno Files. Jim, darling, it's so nice to talk to you again. Well, thank you again for being here. And now, John Gilbert, a lot of people, I guess, if you want, if they're not familiar with silent movies, they really don't realize how big of a star this guy was. He was between the death of Valentino and the rise of the talkies. He was the biggest male star and sex symbol in Hollywood. That's a good, like, eh, four years, I'd say. Uh, people could argue for Douglas Fairbanks or Ronald Coleman, but John Gilbert really was, I think, it during those last years of the silent uh, era. He had a simmering sexuality to him. Oh, the... my God. <laughs> <laughs> that, that cover photo of him. I just fell in love with him. Yes, with the eyes. And, and we're going to get into it in, in, a little, in a little bit because I want to talk about the... Because, you know, he did not make the transition to talkies. And there are several rumors out there about why he didn't and what happened... But let's first off talk about his early life. He was the he was the son of theater people. Yes, he had a tough childhood. Uh, his parents were touring actors. I think his mother had kind of a bum rap. Uh, everybody says that she was this dreadful slut who would bring men home and lock John in the uh, closet. And, and uh, I don't know how much of that is verifiable. Some of that comes from Adele Rogers St. John's, who was... One of those people who, as the saying goes, would climb a spiked pole to lie to you when she could stand on the ground and tell the truth. <laughs> so he did have a tough childhood. He was not close to either of his parents, and he set out in his mid-teens to uh, break into the films. Now, and you mentioned the the, uh, the unfounded rumor about his mother, and part of that dealt with, um, there was a, a Kevin Brownlow documentary back around 1980 which featured his uh featured his daughter and mm -hmm. she kind of made that comment that that her his mother would wake him up in the middle of the night and introduce him to his new daddy well of course i became uh friends with uh his daughter wonderful lady and actually the grandchildren too um she got the stories from her mother and her mother got the stories from who knows where. It's, it's, you know, friend of a friend of a friend, and who knows how much truth there is in there. But I tend to, poor John Gilbert's mother led a very hard life herself. She was a single mother touring actress, and that's a dreadful time to have. So I'm trying to give her a break as well. That's right. And, and you know, he didn't know his father until uh, his real father, I mm -hmm. think until he was introduced on the set of was it the Merry Widow, was that the one that, 
or the big. No, I think he was. He was an extra. I think, of course, according to Hollywood legend, everyone who ever lived was an extra in that ballroom scene. <laughs> Clark Gable was there, and and I don't know who else was there, but uh, yeah, he was not close to his uh, parents. He was a little closer to his stepfather, but um, I think his, his issues with women possibly stemmed from not having a close relationship with his mother because he fell in love with just about every woman he met. Oh. And I think it speaks well for him also that he had a lot of um, uh, women writer friends and older women whom he befriended. That's right. And like you said, he um, he took the... MGM, rather, wanted him to replace Gar- uh, Valentino after Valentino's death. Well, Valentino uh, was not with MGM. Oh, he was with Fox, uh, wasn't he? Hmm? Was he with Fox? No, I believe he was with Universal. Universal? And we're probably all getting this wrong. <laughs> I don't have my Valentino information in front of me. But, um, no, he was, uh, first, John Gilbert had his first real successes at Fox in the uh, early to mid-20s and was signed by MGM in 1924. And really his champion was uh, Irving Thalberg. Oh, yes. Who Irving Thalberg was your best friend until it no longer paid to be your best friend. He was kind of a shark. And even uh, Irving's wife, Norma Shearer, who was a great friend of John Gilbert's, said that she couldn't understand how when John Gilbert was no longer bringing in money, Irving just basically turned his back on him and would not do a thing for him. And, of course, John Gilbert and Louis D. Mayer famously hated each other. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, they hated each other so much. And John Gilbert, unfortunately, admitted he loved poking the bear with a stick. And he, if he could do anything to annoy Louis D. Mayer, he would do it. And he admitted that. John Gilbert admitted his own faults and his own mistakes, which is one of the things I find so endearing about him. Now, how did you, how did it, how hard was it separating the fact from the fiction in John Very Gilbert? hard. And one of, uh, one of the reasons, if you like the book, you should thank my my late friend James Zarook, who wrote a wonderful book about Peg Entwistle. Um, James died last year, and oh, he, oh, I didn't he know was. That. Yes, yes, he he uh, was working on a book about um, Alfalfa from Little Rascals at the time of his death, and unfortunately, that will probably never be finished. But um, James was my West Coast research assistant, and he found. Uh, Sam Magazine writer Gladys Hall's notes for her interviews with John Gilbert. So these were his own unedited words before they were, you know, cleaned up and polished for fan magazine interviews, which was just invaluable because you could just hear him going on and, and cursing and saying horrible things about his films and his co-workers and it, it just really got his own words into the book, which was just invaluable for me. Now he, uh, when he was at Fox, um, he was he got his uh, first exposure to movies, I believe, in westerns, if, if I'm not mistaken. Just about every kind of film. He also did a, a slapstick comedy and was very good in it. Uh, I always thought it was a shame he wasn't given more comedy to do. Um, he was thrown into bit parts and leads and comedies and westerns, and it was a great school for him. Uh, before he was signed on to Fox, and they tried to build him up into a leading man. And when when Valentino died, you know he became he became the uh, 
the leading man um, of the movies. He was in Valentino's death with a great career break for John Gilbert. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you, if you can't it was read. actually a great career break for Valentino, too, because, you know, had he lived to uh, make talking films, he would have faded away into a kind of balding character actor with an Italian accent. He would not be remembered as Valentino. And that's true. That's true. I mean, one of the uh, one of the exceptions to the rule again was uh, Greta Garbo, but they kept her out of sound movies for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And but Greta Garbo and him in the silent Greta Garbo rather and John Gilbert in the silent era, these were the two that set the screen on fire. They were the the biggest love team, definitely in the in the mid to late twenties. And I find it ironic that. The more research I did, the less I think there was a real romance between them. Um, He, of course, fell in love with her because he fell in love with almost all of his leading ladies. But she was more bowled over and terrified by him than in love with him. Uh, She was this 21-year-old girl who barely spoke English, didn't know anything about the film industry. And he kind of took her under his wing and helped her with her contracts and showed her the ropes at MGM. And as soon as she learned enough English and knew enough, she basically ran like hell away from him. Wow, that's amazing because, you know, you think that they were so close. And again, that was one of the, one of the other things that the studios, that the studio promoted. Oh, of course, they were no fools. Yeah, it made, it made money. I find the relationship between John Gilbert and Marlena Dietrich much more interesting because they were older uh, they were grown-ups by then. He was basically drinking himself to death, and she was trying to save him from himself and resurrect his career. So that's the relationship I find so fascinating. That is true. And they, uh, I mean, even after he passed away, she uh, she supported his uh, his daughter, I believe. Uh, she was, she, she tended to take, you know, broken sparrows under her wing, uh, uh, Marlene Dietrich uh, kind of tried to sponsor Judy Garland and Edith Piaf and Montgomery Clift, and she never succeeded, basically. She meant well, bless her heart, but she, she picked hopeless cases. Well, I tell you what, they, um, now getting back to John Gilbert, you know, he, um, what would be his big break? Would you say that was a big parade, or would it be the Merry Widow? Um, well, his big break was being signed by MGM. Um, I think that, uh, the big parade, well, 1925 was his year, and, uh, certainly the Merry Widow, huge success, and, um, uh, the big parade was his favorite film of all of his films, and made a huge amount of money, Flesh and the Devil with Garbo, um, and we get into 1926, Lotto M, and the show is wonderful. Uh, that is his sexiest villain, uh, if you get a chance to see that. He plays a, an evil circus performer, and he's just marvelous in that. Uh, really, his, he couldn't lose money, uh, even in, in films that weren't all that great, in like 12 Miles Out and The Cossacks, or, you know, not that great films, Four Walls. But he was basically minting money for MGM. Now, Eric, um, the Merry Widow was Eric von Stroheim, I believe, was the director of that one. 
Yes, and Mae Murray was not as crazy then as she later became. She was actually the peacemaker on the film. Eric von Stroheim, uh, well, Eric von Stroheim and John Gilbert were both temperamental perfectionists, and you know how that's going to go. So they fought continuously throughout the film. And he also fought with Mae Murray, who wanted this to be a glamorous Mae Murray production. But she actually uh, was the oil on the water because John Gilbert would basically start crying and run off the set when Von Stroheim lay into him for his performance. And Mae Murray would find him and calm him down and, you know, go back to Von Stroheim and try to calm him down. And she told increasingly crazy stories as the years went on about the filming. And it's funny, you can read May Murray in the late 20s talking about it, and then May Murray in the 30s talking about it, and then May Murray in her autobiography in 1959 talking about it, and her stories just get crazier and crazier. So I love comparing them all and trying to figure out which one is the most likely. So after he passes away, the stories get, the stories get more sensationalistic. Well, she was always very nice to John Gilbert. They were friends. He, of course, fell in love with her, as he tended to do. And she said, no, look, we're going to be friends, and that's it. And he was able to take no for an answer. Uh, Norma Shearer, as well, he was just friends with. Oh, wow. Okay, now now the big parade, though, that was King Vidor. Yes, and, and uh, that was a uh, great World War One drama, and... John Gilbert shaved off his, his signature mustache and gave a really marvelous, uh, stark performance in this. I'm trying to remember the movie. that It was with Garbo, and she was lighting candles. And the way she, I believe it was, I believe he was the love interest. It may have been La Boheme. Where, no, that was Lillian Gish. Oh, that was Lillian And Lillian Gish was nobody's love interest. She, she did not like being touched. She wanted to write out all the love scenes. Uh, she would complain to her friends, oh, God, I've got to go to work and kiss John Gilbert. And all her friends were like, oh, shut up, Lillian Gish. <laughs> Such a hard life. I mean, <laughs> It really is. It's like, i got, I got to go to work tomorrow morning, too, but I don't have to kiss John Gilbert. You know, shut up, Lillian Gish. <laughs> but now, was it 1925 or 1926, he signed the contract which was unheard of at the time. Uh, a million. Oh, oh you're gonna you're gonna pin me down to dates. Uh, oh, I'm ten gonna. Ten <laughs> years after I researched. <laughs> no, no. Let's let's just say during the during the mid twenties. Uh, okay. <laughs> we uh, he signed a contract with um, MGM, and um, and it was from or was it another studio? It had to be MGM because it was. Oh, no, it was definitely MGM. Okay. Yeah, and it was a million and a half dollars a year. And that. Undid him in the end because when uh, the depression and talkies hit pretty much simultaneously, almost all studios asked their performers and their staff to take pay cuts, and John Gilbert refused, which was not bright of him, and he later admitted this. So not only was that showing that he was a bad team player, which annoyed Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg even more. But in order to cut the budgets on his film to make up for his salary, they would get him lesser co-stars, lesser writers, uh, lesser scene designs, and his films just began to look cheaper and cheaper. He should have taken the pay cut and, you know, basically sucked it up. There are so many early MGM talkies 
that he would have been brilliant in that they refused to cast him in. He would have been great in Grand Hotel opposite Garbo. Oh, yeah. um, uh, John Barrymore, I love him, but he was 25 years too old for that part. Um, he would have been wonderful. Um, if you've ever seen the 1931 Private Lives with Norma Shearer and Robert Montgomery, awful, unwatchable. And John Gilbert and Ina Claire would have been genius in that. See, that's what I want. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, there, there are just so many films that he could have done in the early 30s that um, I just watch them and I can't enjoy them because I keep picturing John Gilbert in them. Let's talk about the the most probably the most repeated rumor about his life, and it's it's almost taken on a life of its own. This story that uh, he was going to have a double wedding. Um, he was going to marry Greta Garbo, and I believe uh, Eleanor Boardman was going to marry somebody else. King Vidor. King Vidor, yes. Uh huh. And um, they're going to do a double wedding, and Garbo, like he said, didn't show up. She got cold feet left him at the altar, and he's in the restroom or bathroom with Louis B. Mayer, and he's crying, and uh, Meyer, Mayer says, well, for want of another term, sleep with her, don't marry her, and he punches Louis B. Mayer and knocks him down. Okay, there's so many versions of this story, it's like Rashomon, so as I say <laughs> in the book, we will never know what happened, um, and I tell the various versions of the story uh, he punched Mayer. Mayer punched him. Nobody punched anybody. Uh, Garbo, I think everybody agrees that Garbo never had any intentions of showing up for a double wedding because that was so not her. Um, whether he even thought she was going to show up, nobody knows. I have a friend who insists that Eleanor Boardman, who did repeat the story endlessly, say that, well, she saw it. She was there and I'm thinking, what was Eleanor Boardman doing in the men's room? Yeah, that sounds weird. <laughs> exactly, you know, it's like, did Eleanor Boardman make it a habit of hiding out in the men's room and spying on people? So, uh, and people say, are you saying Eleanor Boardman was lying? I'm like, no, it's just after 50 years, one's memory gets a little faded about these things, and if you hear it often enough. So, one of the things as a biographer when I don't know something, I admit that I don't know it because it's important not to lose your reader's trust. So with stories like this, and this will crop up in every book I do, I will say, okay, this is the story it's told. This is the source. This is how believable the source may or may not be. I'll leave it up to you to decide whether it's true or not. See, that's, and that's the best way to do it because nobody... Nobody really knows. There was only two people in that restroom at the time. It, three, if you include Eleanor Boardman. If indeed it ever happened <laughs> at all. If it happened at all, yes. And if it I did, would check. When next time you go into the men's room, I'd check under the stalls to make sure Eleanor Boardman is not there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would, uh, I would wonder. I wonder see, my question is, this is a high-profile event, and there was more than just those two people there. Now, if... Now, if, well, first of all, if he'd have knocked Louis B. Mayer out, wouldn't somebody have noticed that the injured head of the MGM was bleeding all over the bathroom floor that nobody somebody, mentions this that's anywhere? That's what I was say, yeah. Why didn't somebody notice this? If somebody, I mean, in, in a restroom, if you get knocked out, you've got to be pretty seriously injured, you know, knocking your head or your arm against the sink or the floor, you know? Or if you get punched in the face... 
I mean, his nose would be bleeding, his nose would be cut or something. I mean, there would be some telltale signs. Yeah, so I, I think they, in my opinion, which is worth absolutely nothing, I think they may have had words, and that's about it. But they hated each other anyway. It's irrelevant, because they hated each other before this, and they hated each other after this. The other, the other rumor that sprung out of that story was that Louis B. Mayer, or he had a sound technician monkey around with the... Uh, with the uh, sound and absolute nonsense, not even physically possible at the time because nobody knew much about. First of all, Douglas Shearer was in charge of um, sound technology at MGM, and there's no way Douglas Shearer is going to screw up a sound like that just for somebody's grudge. Um, especially being the brother of one of John Gilbert's best friends. Um, no, in his earliest films. His voice sounds fine. It's not a deep, gorgeous Ronald Coleman voice, but he actually had a lower and better voice than Clark Gable and James Cagney. Um, Clark Gable had kind of a high voice. And why would you sabotage your highest paid, uh, highest earning star? Yes, exactly. Uh, they didn't sabotage him, but they didn't help him. They wanted him to quit. Uh, so they were giving him not terribly good films and not terribly good production values. And he said, I don't care if I have to, uh, become a janitor. I'm not quitting just out of sheer spite. He was going to work out that contract and take every cent he could. And he admitted that was a character flaw of his. He would cut off his nose despite his face. You know, he was married, what, let's see here, what, what four times? Married yeah. four times and... It seemed like Leatrice Joy was was he seemed to be more more special to for him than the uh, I don't know for sure, but it just seemed like you know it was more of a personal relationship with Leatrice Joy than with the other ones. Well, people ask me who was the greatest love of his life, and I say the last woman he ever saw. Was that Virginia Bruce? No, 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 no. That, that, well, basically, it was a pretty blonde nurse who was with him when he died. Oh, well, you're talking uh, about, okay. Because yeah, he, he would fall in love, you know, head over heels, weekly, basically. I mean, he fell in love with May Murray, too, didn't he? I mean, it was like... Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, you put a pretty girl in front of John Gilbert and, and Katie bar the door, you know? <laughs> How would he would he survive in today's world? Do you think? I mean, in today's entertainment world, somebody like him. Oh my God! Yes, he had he had such charisma and such talent and very witty. Uh, today, he might have been treated for alcoholism and perhaps uh, bipolar disorder. Who knows? Definitely an alcoholic. Um, he basically drank himself to death for the last three years of his life. He wasn't eating and was drinking. So he was suffering from malnutrition and bleeding stomach ulcers. And uh, he knew he was dying and he didn't care. It was just basically slow suicide. Yeah, I could tell like in one of his later movies that he had lost an ample amount of weight. Very un 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 malnourished, yeah. And um, what do you think? But, oh my God, if you've seen the color film test he made for Desire, one of the... I'm not going to say tragedy because that's such an overused and misused word, but a real annoyance of film history is that he was just about to make a comeback as a character actor when he died because Marlene Dietrich got him the second lead in Desire, which is a great sexy screwball comedy. She and Gary Cooper play Believe, and John Gilbert was supposed to play her older partner in crime, and they did 
color screen tests of him, which are on YouTube. Yeah, I did um, see. I did see. Oh my God, he's so gorgeous. He's so handsome, and that smile. It's just a, such a killer. He could have been a younger, sexier Adolf Manju and gone on for another twenty or thirty years. See, that's that's the sadness about this whole that this whole uh, story of John Gilbert is that he could have he could have been something. Uh, more than he, he, was, he was. He, he was, was younger guy. than um, Ronald Coleman, and Ronald Coleman acted into the 1950s. Yeah, see, and that's and even today, um, like you mentioned uh, on in the uh, in the liner notes on your book, you know, you mentioned the movie The Artist from 2011, which won mm-hmm. the Academy Award. This yeah. was one. He was one of the inspirations. Yeah. For, for that character. Oh, definitely. Um, it was kind of a combination of him and Douglas Fairbanks and a few other people, but uh, uh, the actor definitely was made up to look like John Gilbert. Yeah, and and then he had, you know... And that's it. Uh, Brad Pitt is playing a um, John Gilbert-like character in an upcoming film. Amazing. And it's, it's, and he's been dead for 80, 80-something years. I was thinking, Brad Pitt? Well, no, not, not, <laughs> John Gilbert. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. No, John Gilbert's been has passed away eighty something years ago, and he still his shadow is still being cast across Hollywood. And thank goodness for TCM and DVDs and streaming and and YouTube. He's still available. When I was a kid, way back in the dark ages. In order to see an old movie, you had to wait for it to come on TV at 3 o'clock in the morning and sneak down to the living room and not wake your parents up and watch it with the sound down. And now I can just pick up my phone and look at a John Gilbert movie anytime I want to. And then you couldn't, then you couldn't uh, find any silent movies on the, on the uh, TV. Well, when I grew up in Philadelphia, the local PBS station would show silent movies every Wednesday night, and I was parked there in front of my TV. Oh, you're lucky. I wish I wish I our t- our uh, station does that. But thank goodness for TCM and Silent Sunday Nights. So, um, but John Gilbert, the last of the silent film stars, is the book. Eve Golden is the author. Eve, thank you so much for being on the Juno Files. Thank you, so I hope, I hope to talk to you again for my next book. All right, that's the Juno Files for now. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock I know where I'm gonna go I'm gonna pick my baby up And take her to the picture show Everybody is dressed 